everyone, and welcome to Hype A, a podcast amplifying voices in the arts around the world, making the arts accessible for all people. We will be hearing guests from the film, art, music industries, and more, sharing their stories, failures, and successes. We will be listening in on their new endeavors, projects, and take notes on their tips and tricks, how they broke into the industry, hear their words of wisdom. Over the years, I've met some amazing people who have really enriched my life and my art practice, and I'm so grateful to have met them around the world. I hope to share with you my personal experiences, but mainly support you by introducing you to inspirational leaders in their creative field. If you're looking to fulfill a dream in the arts, need that extra motivation, or simply be inspired, you've come to the right place. So get access, get tuned in and turned on every Thursday. Welcome to Hype A. Hello everyone, I hope you're loving Hype A. Please do let us know on Hype A Voices on Instagram. We really appreciate the feedback. And if you would like to sponsor us and produce adverts, you know where to find us. Welcome back to another episode. We're in episode 10. I can't actually believe it. Um, today we have Eric Newmanen. He's a painter from Montreal, Canada. He was born in 1985, a year after me in Ottawa. He studied his BA, BFA, rather, Bachelor of Fine Arts degree at the University of Ottawa in 2007 and later his MFA, Masters of Fine Art in Montreal at Concordia University. Eric exhibits globally in solo and group shows, including Berlin and New York since 2006. He has been invited to be a speaker in various artist talks. He teaches and is also an artist mentor. Eric's works are known to be sort of quote unquote real, hyper real. But he says, when you're in a place, you tend to absorb much more than you can possibly remember. You notice details and seemingly inconsequential things, which are then put together in your mind to represent the qualities that the mind absorbs requires a combination of recollection and reference. Photography is an important tool. He also mentions that he's interested in what one could call ordinary fare. I don't look for the exotic, he says. The scenes that I'm interested in are usually immediately familiar as social types and modern spaces. Within these unassuming locations, subjects and situations, I try to tap into what I perceive as the endless narratives and ironies that happen around us all the time. Eric is currently uh, exhibiting at the moment and uh, I can't wait to get into it. As a painter myself, I'm very, very excited about this episode. So sit back, grab a drink of choice, relax, and let's welcome Eric. Hello, Eric. How are you doing today? Hello. Yes, I'm doing very well. It's nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. And thank you so much for coming to Hype. Well, it's my pleasure. Um, I've been looking forward to this for some time now. 
we've been trying to arrange it haven't we and we've been sort of busy and then with technical difficulties and you and your show preparation as well um and actually it's quite interesting because how we were introduced was through Juliana, Juliana España Keller. Um, he was on episode one, High Pay Listeners. Um, how do you know Juliana? Um, well, I'll, um, for the sake of uh, familiarity, I suppose I'll just call her Julie. Um, yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so when I was doing my MFA at Concordia here in Montreal, she was a painting professor in uh, teaching undergrad classes and as an MFA, they give you the chance to be a teaching assistant for uh, some of the undergrad classes. And I was luckily paired with, uh, with Julie for my second TA gig, which um, I won't name names, but after the first experience, which was not quite as, um, I suppose, a, a, a perfect match, Julie was, was a, a breeze and a pleasure to work with. And mm -hmm. uh, we had many things in common, despite outwardly seeming like very different people uh but uh, yeah we bonded very nicely and we've kept in touch ever since then that was back in 2008 i guess 2009 somewhere there and mm -hmm. um yeah so so i i you know i've kept in touch with her even when i was i was living in berlin for five years and uh, she came to do a residency for a few months i think at an icelandic uh, residency space and we got together there for some time and uh, just on and off over the years. And I've guest lectured in her class a few times since then. And uh, so it was, it was kind of a small world sort of thing when it turned out that you were um, interviewing her first. I think maybe you did a residency with her. I'm not quite sure. Something of that sort. Yes. And uh, somehow my name must have come up. So I was thrilled when uh, when you reached out. Well, I was. I was doing the art residency that um, she organizes and she's in charge of in Spain, in Andalusia. And it was actually Juliana. I call her Juliana. Um, yes. <laughs> and she was the one who basically kind of gave me the kick up the backside to go ahead and do the thing, which is this podcast. And it's something that I... You can, yeah, and you know, this is something I've been wanting to do for like two years. And I was like, I'm not sure. I thought I was going to do an like a painting art residency. Turns out, didn't do much painting. It was all about getting this set up. Um, and she was my first guest, as you know. And well, well Julie's yeah. such a generous spirit, such a sort of a person that both connects to people, but also wants other people. To connect to each other and really pushes people to get out there in the world and, and in essence kind of achieve the best version of themselves and uh she's i guess on some principle a, a living example of that who someone who you know um did started doing a phd in australia sort of right in the middle of her life just sort of uprooted herself left montreal went off to australia now she lives as, as you said in spain running this residency and uh, is involved with conferences and artists all over the place and um, yeah a great connector and, a, and a, just a wonderful generous warm person absolutely and um through her i've also been given the extra encouragement to actually follow to do a phd as well so i'm sure she'd oh, be very happy about that um but um basically she's she's spoken very very highly of you and she encouraged me to have you on here 
on Hypay. So I know we've been waiting a long time to get you on here and we finally made it. Anyway, let's let's get into it. Um, before we actually start to talk about your paintings, um, tell us about your background um, growing up and uh, maybe your observation of the world when you were growing up. Yeah, so like, like you mentioned, um, I'm from Ottawa in Canada originally. And um, despite the fact that it's the capital city, it's not, it doesn't have a big cosmopolitan metropolitan feel. It really, in, in essence, feels like a small town in a number of ways. Uh, now I go back to visit family and I always wonder where all the people are. It just, it just feels like I'm in a real sleepy town type of place. So I grew up there, um, although I spent the first several summers of my life in Finland. And mm -hmm. so um, I had this kind of dual identity when I was young. My, my father is Finnish, um, a very, very Finnish man in every sense possible. And so I, in essence, kind of grew up as a uh, Finnish person in Ottawa. And uh, so when people ask me my nationality, I do say I'm Canadian, but I also, you know, I, uh, add the anendum that, um, well, I'm, I'm, I feel more like a Finn in most ways. Um, so, yes. so I grew up in Ottawa and I think that the general idea is if you grow up in Ottawa and you are interested in the arts and culture and these sorts of things, it's, it's very much a government town. And so you wanna kind of escape Ottawa as, as soon as you can. Um, it's not really the ideal kind of place to cultivate a career as, as a, as a person in the arts, though there are a few opportunities, but they are few and far between. Um, mm -hmm. So once I finished my, my undergrad degree at Ottawa U, I, uh, I went off to Montreal uh, to do my MFA. So, so in terms of, you know, my upbringing, it was really totally surrounded by art, however. Like I'd, I'd go to the National Gallery with my parents um, every weekend essentially. Uh, my father's an artist, also a painter. My uncle's a painter. Uh, and there's just been a number of other artists down through the generations uh, in my family. And so, you know, you could say that I was brainwashed from the beginning. There was, yeah. there was little else. I really, uh, I never really had a plan B in essence. Um, so, so that just seemed, you know, a lot of people grow up thinking and that an artist is not really, it's not really a career, it's not really a job, it's maybe it's a hobby or, or they wonder how is this sort of a feasible, serious thing to be in life? And, and for me, it was kind of the reverse. Despite my mom, she's a, she was a teacher, um, which is, you know, very normal sort of common uh, job. But for me, it seemed like these sorts of jobs were the most sort of exotic or somewhat um, strange or bizarre, the, the, the usual nine to five jobs that people have. And, and so an artist for me was just a totally normal expectation. It's like, well, yeah, what else, what else would one be really? So it was just kind of um, a straightforward, normal path for me to follow. Um, so, so yeah. yeah, I didn't, I didn't struggle with the identity of being an artist ever. It was, it was kind of, I'd, I'd struggle with another identity if I ever had one, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah. yeah, no, that's cool. I, I totally resonate with that. I'm sure you're aware, as you know, I'm Italian and Colombian um, background. And my father's side are basically they were all painters, pretty much. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, okay. So, so 
I totally understand with with that upbringing that's just like that's kind of normal and when I have people ask me like how did you become a painter it's like well it was just it was just around me all the time kind of thing like my it was a legitimate portraits. option yeah 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 exactly um and it's funny it's interesting how you said that your mum uh, was a teacher and is she still teaching at the moment no she's retired at the yeah. moment um and how that was like the most exotic you, you know the nine to five job that's quite interesting mm-hmm. and so you speak about the exotic um um here uh, as in this interview right now but also with the quote that I had um, quoted you in the introduction um, and you speak about observation tell us about tell us about that because I think we're now getting into philosophical territory aren't we about perspectives and understanding what is the real what makes something real possibly um, yeah well I guess uh, you know Part of being an artist is there's the idea that being an artist is someone, I mean, let's just say a painter to be specific in this case, seeing as that's what I spend most of my time doing it, it you know, it's someone that creates pictures that creates uh, sort of things that look like things or um, at the very least uh, moves, you know, if you want to really reduce it down is someone that moves colored dirt around on a piece of cloth, really. I mean, that's ultimately what what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, 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 the value of being a painter, of being an artist is, is that you are in essence striving for something that's permanently out of grasp. It's kind of, um, and you'll never get to your full goal. I mean, relatively speaking, at least that's the way it is for me because I'm always trying to make the perfect painting. And, and so what do I mean by that? Like, so for one thing that doesn't exist, but also, um, so painting is in, in, in some way, uh, it's striving to present or, or uh, depict something of the unlived life or of the unachieved life or an alternate life. Um, maybe present an alternate reality, independent reality, something that's based on our own experiences and our own collective knowledge, but ultimately exists only within itself. So the painting is its own form of reality. It's a kind of portal. And uh, so I think, I think, you know, this is a, it's a sort of utopian activity on, on some level. And um, so my ability to observe the world is strictly uh, in terms of its use in art is just as a way to sort of absorb as much material as I can and then sort of as if through a sieve just kind of uh, allow certain bits of information through onto the canvas and then the canvas speaks back to me and it tells me oh no no we need a little bit more or you put too much or, and then, so it's this constant dialogue in terms of the canvas becoming a living, breathing reality, a creature in front of me in essence. I've, uh, yeah. I've sometimes likened it almost to like a, like a boxing match or a sparring session in yeah. this way that like I, I put something there and then it responds and then it goes back and forth for a while until eventually we settle into either some sort of rude, violent ending or ideally, mm-hmm a nice, happy decision at the end. Um, 
I totally understand what you mean by that as a painter. I, I get that. Um, because it's also like what's necessary is also having that balance um, with control and surrender, isn't it? I mean, as an, as an abstract painter myself, there's, I guess there's maybe, I don't know. I think it's still a balance between control and surrender, um, but making it look like it's effortless. Um, but with your work, there are certain figurative elements to your work um, that could bend towards the real. Uh, and then you've got some abstracted elements. So elements where there's basically like floods of color, different energies and speeds of color, uh, also with your gesture and how your application of the oil, oil paint that you use. Um, also reflections of light. And also it's quite interesting because looking at your work, I'd love to see it in person, um, but online on, on Eric's website, please do check it out. We'll give you the link at the end. Um, basically it's kind of like a, you're looking at a reality of a reflection or something that you're looking at. Um, and so it's kind of the question of, well, who, who is the observer here? Um, are we the observer looking at it or is the painter the observer that's looking at it that's forcing us the <laughs> spectator mm -hmm. to look at it from his eric's perspective um there's yeah i just there's a lot of philosophy that i can draw out of this in metaphysics personally um also because this is just the kind of stuff i'm into and also things that i can see uh reflecting back to me uh and that's being communicated to me that i'm reading as a reader well, I think uh, I think all paintings, on some level, uh, they they observe the viewer just as much as the viewer observes them. Um, you know, this is sort of a romantic notion of painting on some level. But after all, if we didn't have that, then we wouldn't be painters. Uh, we'd be theorists alone. And uh, <laughs> absolutely, you know, that's a topic for another day, perhaps. But you can easily <laughs> theorize yourself out of painting if you're not careful. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's this really cool um, work that you made in 2018. It's called Above Below. And it's sort of looking like a vortex of um, sort of floods of liquid light um, painted oil on linen. Uh, it's about 200 and 300 centimetres. It's quite a good size, I would say. Um, and it looks like a diptych, doesn't it? It looks like two paintings that you've put together. Well, it's essentially, yeah, it's, it's, I see it as one painting, but yeah. partially for logistical reasons in terms of actually being able to move it, uh, I did it on yes. two panels and put together. Um, well, see, that's the thing. So I have a work like that, which veers very much into abstraction, though there's hints of some figurative elements. Um, mm -hmm. I don't really distinguish between abstraction and, and figuration on any significant level, which is yeah. strange, I guess, if, if one were to look at some of my works and they look highly realist in, in a traditional way. Um, they're all- not, not entirely though, to, to interrupt you there, if you don't mind, not yeah. entirely because they're kind of like close-ups, you know? And I think that's what abstraction is about though, as well. It's kind of like looking at something botanical, looking at something that's seemingly real in our world with our eyes. Um, but they're looking like close-ups of the real, of the real world. 
um, from the botanical world, from the clinical world, from what I'm seeing on your on your site? I think it's sort of um, yeah, close-ups or in some ways um, remixes. Even it's it's kind of a remix of the world. Um, so so like the painting that you mentioned above below, uh, it started in a place of pure abstraction, which is where I start most of my works, just in kind of geometrical uh, shapes banging into each other and drawings and so on and so forth. Like I try not to have mm-hmm. uh, a subject matter at the outset and I just kind of allow myself to fall into, into the subject. And sometimes I don't actually fall into anything particularly representative or figurative or anything like that. I just fall into other shapes and other bits of light and hints of hints of uh, space and things of this sort. And so work like that, mm-hmm. that stays quite abstract is, is just me allowing the flow of the process to guide me in a purely intuitive level. So almost to intellectualize it is almost counter to the, um, the whole statement of the work. The work itself for me was an experience from start to finish of, of letting go of, of any sort of expectations. Um, and that's just the work, like we were saying previously, that's just the work speaking to me and telling me what it needs. In some ways, the painting is in control. Um, and I'm just sort of there to kind of make sure it's comfortable along the de- along the path to its ultimate destination. Um, I, yeah. I work a lot with uh, light reflection. And so I just some of the bits you were talking about of like uh, light and other sort of things coming into it, I, I use these kind of... Um, aesthetic moments of, of illumination, quite literally, I, I play with light in the studio and so on. And so I inject these bits and things into, into paintings to provide another layer of, of maybe sort of a reality in between reality where light makes sense, maybe in relation to our world or the world in the painting, um, or at least it implies another kind of portal through which you have to get, enter to get to maybe the further uh, reality that's grounded in the painting. Just it's it's a way to uh, take the painting and separate it from our world, and maybe slowly allow the viewer to find themselves uh, and locate themselves in the painting eventually. Yeah, and you know you also um, speak about photography as well in your theory. Let's say, do you? How, 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 what are your thoughts on photography um, as an art form or as a documentation form? Yeah, I think I take it mostly as a documentation. Uh, I was highly influenced, or I should, I should maybe just go back to the beginning. Yeah. Um, when I was, you know, this, this kid growing up in Ottawa and then becoming a teenager and so on, my earliest interests were sort of early 20th century painting, um, modernism essentially. So things where uh, you start, it was anti-photographic essentially that, you know, the photograph, at least in terms of its physical manifestation, not the camera so much, was something that really was developed towards the end of the 19th century. And so painters of course had a response, which was to move away from what was conventionally depicted as real. And so we get things like impressionism and expressionism and all these sorts of other kinds of movements included in that, of course, is things like what Picasso was doing with cubism and the the Italians were playing around with futurism. Um, 
of which I was interested in their aesthetic concerns, not their political burn all the museums and uh, yeah, no, <laughs> all the I rest agree. of that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, and actually, I mean, I don't think quite a number of the artists involved weren't even down with all that. They just kind of went along with it because it created a lot of hype for their art career, at least at first. And then, so you yeah. sort of see a lot of them moving away from that as it got really associated with the whole uh, fascist movement. But anyway, um, so these ideas about color and form and things, colliding and banging around in space. And, and um, these were my original interests and still are in effect. Uh, and so, you know, when I was starting my BFA, I was, I was making sort of pseudo cubist, pseudo futurist kinds of paintings. And they were okay, but they were very much grounded in that sort of old aesthetic and old style. And so I thought, well, what's the opposite of that to get away from that? Otherwise I'm just gonna follow down this redundant path to what end? So the opposite of that ultimately is, is photography to me. Um, right. And so I became highly influenced by the photorealist painters where it's the opposite of movement. It's a static image. It's, it's literally frozen in time. Um, and so I made a few paintings that could be in some ways called photorealist as a way to sort of force myself through another path to get back to my original interest, which is movement, color, abstract thought and so on. And so slowly I started to, uh, I guess, uh, re-inject these original ideas into my works by getting rid of the photograph little by little. And so, so I use photography a lot now. I use video documentation as well. And I go through my videos frame by frame to find moments of interest, but I'm never actually using a photo and then copying the photo. So uh, mm -hmm. to the extent that I use the photo, it might be um, just a small little corner of a photo here or a little reference point here for a clump of foliage there or, or, or what have you. Um, but for any given painting, if I'm using a photo, it'll be dozens of photos really, which uh, just provide different kinds of hints of information that come together to gel into a new hole, but there's no actual photo or Photoshop type of composition that, that, that's um that exists outside of the painting so the painting is the reality and the photo serves as as an aid as a guide as a as a tool as a tool uh yeah definitely i mean i can i can definitely sense that in your work you know that it's not copied from a photograph because you know how sometimes it can look really stale when someone does that it can For look sure, like yeah, very yeah, yeah very well, there's um, an aesthetic superficial. it's very superficial isn't it yeah an artificial there's an yeah there's there's well there's an aesthetic in terms of how the painting is composed even you can tell almost immediately that you know this is based on a, a monocular point of view which is how the photo and how the sort of mechanical vision of the world is is, is presented and so um you know painting has the opportunity painting essentially has no rules it's something without gravity it's without conventional kind of ideas about space and time and and so on and and crucially then perspective and so you know a camera is a perspective machine it's grounded in a singular perspectival structure but we as humans we don't experience the world in that way we experience it psychologically not mm -hmm. mechanically and so you can use machines to aid in in, in creating something that's independent away from that, that's alternate, that's um, closer, a little bit more akin to how we uh, go through the world in an experiential manner. And of course, 
these are just my own experiences and my own thoughts and everybody has their own way, but I hope that my paintings do provide that. They, they sort of reach out to the viewer and uh, maybe find a home somewhere in their psychology of a past experience or you know, some sort of hint of maybe just, it could just be a color. It just could be a color that, that uh, sings at them for just a very brief or a long moment. Yeah, it's interesting because the first sort of um, feeling of your work that I personally had as a reader of your work um, was from my childhood, the film Jurassic Park. Um, oh, yes. And it's the particular moment when the kids are in the, the car, they're waiting and it's raining and they're in the park mm -hmm. and they're sort of looking at the fence. Oh, with um, the T-Rex, right? Is that when they're going yeah, to show up? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's sort of what it reminds me of. It, it, there's something about your work that can be, uh, for me as a reader, and I, that's probably not your intention at all, um, is this, there's something quite... Um, like the viewer isn't meant to be there. Like, as I was saying, like, you know, the, the kids in Jurassic Park, it's like, they're protected, but for how long are they going to be protected? You know, and there's something about your works um, from 2016 onwards that I can see, that I can appreciate, and obviously, please do chip in, um, is, you know, is that there's something almost a little bit ominous about it. It's like, should we be observing this experience, this reality, you know? Um, do you do you sort of feel that that could be a true, like, uh, resonant in your work, that observation of mine? I think, I think that's interesting. I mean, I, uh, you're the second person to have mentioned Jurassic Park in relation to my paintings in a different way, mind you, but I'm now thinking about it and thinking, well, you know, actually, maybe... The first person, a friend of mine, Alvin Richard, who's also an artist, uh, brought up this question a few years ago. I think that was more in relation to the scale of objects and the scale, so it's sort of these overgrown plants and maybe people that are all out of, uh, out of normal uh, proportion and so on. But now that I'm thinking about it, you know, I think that in combination with what you mentioned, it does create a kind of otherness um, sort of a sort of like you're watching the world as if on tv or, or yes. you know it's it's sort of like um when you're in the back of a cab and you know the world just it's happening outside of your bubble but you're yes. not really or at least this is my experience you don't really feel like you're a part of it it's just you just assume you're, you're basically in an amusement park ride and you're just being taken for uh just it's just an, it's an experience and you sort of assume that everything is going to work out as it should um yeah. and i think with with my paintings maybe you know uh i i i invest so much time myself in creating these worlds that are like our world that remind us of our world but ultimately are impossible um yeah. so it creates a destabilizing effect at times i think and that's intentional I'm trying to bridge that line and sort of straddle that fence of having something that's familiar and yet strange all at once. And so when we talk about photography, like I'm using some aesthetics of photography in terms of light and shadow and so on. And so we feel like, oh yeah, I know that. 
and you know the world looks like a photo as we all think it does and but then it's like wait no so so if that if that uh, street goes that way in the painting how does that other sort of uh, line in the painting connect to that that doesn't make any sense um, there's a person seemingly coming down from you know almost the sky in some places that maybe it, it doesn't make any sense it so it's so I think um, it's 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 about taking the viewer on a journey of familiarity into the unknown. Um, yeah, so maybe that's absolutely. that's curious. And I also like that you mentioned that uh, that moment in the film when when the when the children are in the uh, in the vehicle looking out through the glass because the glass is then sort of like their version of uh, the portal into the other world. And once that that's protective true. shell of the vehicle is torn away. Um, they're then suddenly thrust fully into, if I can make a lame sort of analogy of the, the, the painting of their life, essentially, which is it's become real. And so my goal, I guess, is to in some ways ha hopefully have a viewer that will cast away their preconceived notions of what the world looks like and be able to enter into the new reality that's created in my painting. Absolutely. And the Honestly, high pay listeners, they are absolutely stunning. They are just, you know, as a painter, I can appreciate the time that, you know, Eric, you've taken to get as close to that perfectionism that you mentioned earlier and also getting the right light as well. Um, but they're just so, they're so seductive and entrancing and alien yet familiar and there's also, as we spoke about, uh, we can agree that there's this sort of film of reality in between the observation um, and the subject matter. How about the titles of your works? Because you've got some interesting titles, don't you? You've got um, series of works that are called like Reality One, Reality Two, a series called Free Fall, a series called Paradise Not Lost. And then you've got titles of your work that's called Garden Passage. Sunset in the Second System, um, Concealed Recreation. I mean, again, all, all absolutely gorgeous works. Flight of Pegasus. There was something about Hades as well, which I was researching about too. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the titles, titles are always a bit, um, they either come to me very easily or it's an absolute struggle. I mean, it's one or the other and there's never any in between. So sometimes things like you mentioned reality one and reality two, that's just, there's, I mean, there's almost no meaning. It's really literally, these are, it's based on an aesthetic idea of, of the, the level of, of, I guess, distortion that I used or that I employed in some of those paintings. But then other, other ones like uh, Paradise Not Lost, you mentioned, you know, the, the whole kind of body of work, which was ended up being based in, um, I guess, uh, manufactured or, or uh, well, spaces in which we cultivate organic life within a urban environment. So things like zoos, um, here in Montreal, there's a biodome that has a bunch of different ecosystems uh, in an indoor environment, um, botanical gardens, things of this sort that we create almost as a reverse Garden of Eden kind of, you know, we, we've uh, ended up in such a situation that we've 
surrendered ourselves with brick and, and glass and so on and so forth. And in order to, in some ways, stay sane, we created these little mini uh, igloos of, of contemplation mm -hmm. and of tranquility and of exoticism. Um, and so the, the idea of the title Paradise Not Lost, uh, it's just a little reference to the poem by John Milton, which is uh, Paradise Lost, which is more or less about the fall of man and the expulsion from the Garden of Eden and a number of other things, but that's the general thrust of it. And so um, I guess quite literally, the subject matter that I was presenting has in some form implied that it's a return to paradise, but also it's actually mm -hmm. about painting itself as a form of paradise, a paradisical activity whereby um, it's always in a state of perfection and the viewer's relation to it is also always kind of pure and, and, and perfect um, because it's it exists outside of itself, outside of our expectations. Um, yeah, it sounds sort of like what you're saying sounds like you're saying that paradise is not lost. It can be regained depending on how we look at things or how we can personally change that perspective, possibly by doing it you know, ourselves. Yeah, well, exactly. That's, that's exactly right. I think, you know, we live in a, in an incredibly complicated hyper material world, right? I mean, that's, it goes without saying, but I think, you know, you can, you can find yourself in a situation or what if we were to find ourselves in a situation where all that is removed and then how do we find pleasure? How do we find moments of, of just meditative calm? Um, mm -hmm. And I've often thought, you know, well, sometimes I find I can just actually, and this sounds mildly crazy, but I can take pleasure in just looking at a leaf or a, a single blade of grass, one single blade of grass it can become exciting if you really think about it in that way. It can actually become a stunning, miraculous achievement. All the more so, I mean, and we think a blade of grass, I mean, there's so many blades of grass, but if you think about the, even on a cosmic level, you know, the idea that there's more uh, stars in the sky tenfold than there are grains of sand on all the beaches and so on, then suddenly that blade of grass becomes so much more important the fact that it exists at all um and so i think painting it works in a similar way so that if you allow yourself to enter into this moment of kind of without and i'm not talking about just my paintings but in general sort of a miraculous apparition that's in front of you um if you allow yourselves to contemplate that and enter that it becomes an escape from the mundane from the everyday from this and that into a state of mind that is akin to a kind of paradise. It's sort of a, a utopian, like I was mentioning right at the beginning, it's a utopian experience is what painting is. Um, and yeah. hopefully for the viewer as well. Absolutely. Um, you're reminding me of Eckhart Tolle and Eckhart Tolle talks about, you know, you find enlightenment through looking at a flower, <laughs> you know, yeah, and, yeah, that's right. and, and he reminded me of also uh, Leonardo da Vinci has these like tips for artists in his notebooks. And it's about 
basically being obsessive about the world and observing it, obsessively observing every single thing. Um, if you haven't read his notebooks, I would highly encourage you to read it uh, and high pay listeners as well, because um, they're just such kind of timeless tips really. Um, and he, you know, you looking and observing at just a blade of grass, that's, that's the kind of thing that he would say as a teacher to do that and to paint it to its closer, its closeness as much as possible. Um, uh, yeah, so that's, that's just really yeah, that's, cool. You reminded me of that's that. That's great. I've, I've not actually read Leonardo da Vinci's notes, uh, which I should. Um, and I think the most, the most recent uh, <laughs> book of notes or suggestions by an artist that I read were um, not the most useful, which was uh, Salvador Dali. And the thing I took away mostly from that was to add a little bit of Naples yellow into every mixture. But the most useless one was a whole treatise on the uh, advantages of painting in the nude, which uh, I suppose <laughs> was something to do with liberating the artist from the shackles of capitalist uh, material society and so on. But uh, yeah. but um, so far I've not been painting in the nude, but I do put some Naples yellow into uh, into <laughs> uh Yeah. Well, you know, I guess it's also that that nudeness and that connection to paradise as well of yeah. like reclaiming that in the sense of reclaiming that innocence and maybe coming back to your own sense of Eden as well, possibly. That's just how I think. Maybe that's yeah, not what, yeah. what you're intending or what Dali was intending. But um, but yeah. And what about the materials of your work? You, you just spoke about at Naples Yellow. Um, but, you know, do you mainly use oil on linen? Yeah, it's almost always oil. Um, well, it's actually always oil at the moment. I used to paint in acrylic, but uh, for one thing, I just find acrylic dries in, you know, the color looks different once it's dry. And so it's a semi frustrating process of trying to guess what the actual yeah. painting will look like at the end of the day. Plus it dries way too quickly. Um, mm -hmm. I take anywhere between a month to three months often on, on one painting, uh, depending on the scale, uh, the larger the painting, you know, the bigger ones around three months. So uh, there's an advantage to having the paint dry slowly so that I can yeah. contemplate each move. I mean, every, that's the thing about figurative painting or painting that looks figurative is that you're creating a world, but every brushstroke has intention. It has, it's not an, it might even, even if it's somewhat accidental, it's still placed there mm -hmm. with something in mind at some point. Um, which is another way in which it differentiates itself from uh, photos and things of this sort. But anyways. Um, exactly. And I was just thinking about that with photography, also like composition and the placement. You know, this, these are things that are were made again, or let's say um, readdressed during the Renaissance period, which you, you know about, um, about our placement in the world and the horizon line and yeah. uh, composition and things like that which is something that photography sort of uh, wanted to emulate as well. I mean, there are major advances with photography, including then later film, which we now take for granted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, yeah. But with, with the materials, I, I, think, uh, I think it's just, I really love the alchemy of the medium. Um, you know, I, I, I'm an artist. I try to keep it at just being an artist, but ultimately I really am a painter, even though I think you know, yeah. I'm sort of slowly getting into sculpture on some ways, on some levels. Uh, and I use drawing as a totally crucial part of the process. But drawing is so close to painting that 
well, you're still a painter when you're when you're doing yes, drawings. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to venture into other mediums, and and um, I'm sort of slowly making a film as well. But this is these are very much side projects. Um, but just wow. just the oil, the uh, oil medium itself, it provides so many endless possibilities. The flexibility of it is just, I think, it's the most flexible medium that that exists frankly i mean in terms mm -hmm. of uh, uh, in terms of um non-moving images like in terms of film being a moving and this not there's nothing else that can come close to it because photos have power but it's a different kind of power um it's a mm -hmm. it's a fact-based power whereas paintings they tell another kind of truth and that's purely through the actual energy that's embedded in the material by the artist energy again you know it's one of these uh, ethereal <laughs> sort of ideas, you know, it exists or it doesn't, but it's again, back to the whole thing about painting being a psychologically uh, charged activity. Um, so oil provides that. And sometimes I mix it up a little bit by putting in some other sort of outside um, interferences. So things like sand and sawdust and other kinds of gritty materials that I'll place into the paint to to partially to loosen up the process and to avoid being too precious about mm. about the surface, you know, my photos in or my photos, my um, paintings when they've when they've become photos and put on being put online and so on, they sort of reduce themselves on some level sometimes to a photographic look at times. Yeah. Um, but in person, they really are for the most part quite painterly, not big and in a big expressive math method, but when you get up close, you see that it's really just a bunch of little brush strokes or, um, you know, bits and bobs of paint built up. Every painting has, you know, somewhere around 10 layers at least of paint sort of thinly or opaquely scumbled into some sort of formation. And I'm really not that precious about making sure that everything is exactly in the right place or that, you know, everything is rendered to perfection. I'm really, really not. Um, mm -hmm. It's more about creating, you know, the idea of a leaf rather than actually rendering all the veins of the leaf. So if a blob of green, you know, twisted onto the canvas with the flick of the wrist conveys enough information and it, that it reads in a certain way from a the distance, then if it reads like a blob of paint when you get up close to it, that doesn't bother me at all. I think it actually makes the whole thing more magical on some level. Yeah, exactly. Because it also destroys the illusion as well, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. Seeing the materiality—it's—it's it's, it's, it's like a, it's not quite like a magician revealing their tricks, but it's—it's—it. Yeah. It, I think it's be—it's being honest with with the viewer that mm -hmm. your experience of viewing it is somewhat akin to my experience of creating it because you're being led in on the process. Um, and again, for me, that's something magical in a way that things like photography and film don't really participate in they, they do things on in other ways but this is something that really is a it's an intimate relationship with the viewer um, because of the material itself which is organic and in some way living I mean it's always breathing absolutely absolutely and you've you've pointed on a lot of uh, art history <laughs> already on that and art theory um, you know, um, Rothko, Mark Rothko talked about, you know, his paintings living and breathing. Um, obviously the application of how he was painting it, 
the chiaroscuro brushing, um, the fan brush, I'm sure that he was using as well. But um, I was going to ask you about the brands of paints that you use. Is that important to you again, or is not so much? Um, yes and no, not, not, yeah. not intensely. I, uh, the only real rule there is that I do want the paint to be of a good quality. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, um, so I'm not going to go for the student grade paint unless yeah. it's for something, maybe an underpainting or something of that sort where it's less crucial. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But we're quite lucky here in Montreal, actually, that um, we have a brand of paint called Chema Pigments that makes a very high quality paint that's based mm-hmm. here in Montreal. It's a small little store, though they do provide paint, uh, I guess, nationwide, but I don't think you can get it, as far as I know, in many international locations. But um, so I have the access to that without having to venture too much further. Um, That's great. What if they don't the have name? the color, Kama, uh, so K-A-M-A. Kama, um, okay, cool. But if, if they don't have the color I'm looking for, or what have you, or the material, I'll, I'll certainly go for Windsor & Newton or Rembrandt or or um, any of anything else that's of, of high quality and accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. So yeah, no, I'm not particularly brand. <laughs> it's, it's just a mish- mishmash of whatever. Um, I think I'm the same as well. I use the sort of like st- studio, uh, st- student studio paints as the background, just to kind mm-hmm. of like um, still have an impermeable layer, but just set the tone I call it because I'm quite sort of musical when I I I have a synesthesia so oh wow yeah so I kind of like hear the color sort of thing it's basically it's about vibrations um so set the tone with that (laughs) I also use Windsor and Newton um which is a British brand which Mm -hmm. for for those of you who aren't painters it's a UK brand um and uh, for, for the oils and I also use oil sticks as well but I've been using these non-toxic oil sticks um, and acrylic paint as well that I found online um, and they're in combination yeah the, in the combination. acrylic and the oil yeah and actually that, that's the funny thing is I've been using that technique of using acrylic and oil not always but acrylic and oil since I graduated from my BA of BFA um in 2006 as well um so I think it's because I was sort of taught that you could only use one or the other (laughs) so of course I did the rules and then I threw the rule book away and made it my own do do you use the acrylic Um, more as an underpainting then or uh, because I I know of some painters who use acrylic as a sort of base layer because yeah. you can you can't really paint with acrylic over oil too easily it's uh, really no, it's not all. possible but it's not um, possible yeah but you can do the opposite or at least theoretically because it's, yeah. it's uh, not a breathable uh material yeah you can i think the trick is is to kind of basically leave space um for for the oil to soak itself into because I, I as again I, I don't prime my work so basically just oh, like right. leaving a puzzle space that that's what I do not always but recently that's what I've been doing and it's just a technique that I have done before you just leave a space for the oil um, right. and you've kind of got like two dividing lines where you have the acrylic space pool and then you have the oil paint uh, layer or body on on the side of it 
Um, there's also the, the a thing that I do as well, acrylic paint. Uh, I also use um, kitchen spices like turmeric and cayenne oh, pepper. Oh, wow. Um, with so, they, so your paintings there. smell nice as well at the end of the day. It smells great, yeah. A lot of people have said that my work smell really nice because I also burn a lot of incense as well. Um, okay. And, and then I let it dry for a few days, like at least three or four days, especially in the summer months here in the UK. Um, and then on top of that, I'll uh, apply oil paint with a palette on top. So I won't apply the oil paint with a brush, I'll apply it with a palette knife. Oh, with a palette knife, yeah. With a palette yeah, knife, okay. yeah. Um, well, your works are very expressive, so it, or at least they seem that way, uh, viewing them online. So it lends itself to a lot of material and explosive sort of, sort of, well, actually your paintings seem like explosions of um, <laughs> yeah. experimentation, frankly. And Absolutely. so I've never heard of anybody using actual herbs like that in yeah. a painting. That's, that's yeah, quite yeah. nice. Yeah, exactly. And uh, for me, it's also the idea of not feeling precious in that sense where one would need to go to an art shop, a specialized art shop to, to mm -hmm. use the materials. Uh, and by the way, high pay listeners, for those of you who are painters, a tip if you want, um, I'm not sure if Eric would agree on me with this, but you know how they say linseed oil is great for um, oil paints, which it does. And it's a beautiful, gorgeous, seductive blending uh, feel to it. So any way that I can describe it myself when I'm using linseed oil and oil paint. Um, it's very expensive in the art shops. What I do is I, okay, this is like, uh, I'm actually giving you guys a really big secret of mine. Um, I use walnut oil and or I use sesame oil and it equally does the most amazing things. It's like how I can describe it. It's like using a biro and writing on a banana peel. That's what it feels like. <laughs> it's just so smooth. Yeah, walnut oil is something that has shown up in, well, actually, Kevin Pigments sells uh, walnut oil as a, as a painting medium. Um, I've not tried it myself. I've, I've sort of just uh, stuck to diluted, I, I dilute linseed oil with mineral spirits and uh, I keep it very, I keep my materials quite minimal in essence. Um, to That's great. Essentially so that they become archival to the greatest mm -hmm. extent that I can. Uh, so the, the whole sort of uh, fat over lean rule of, of, of using thicker, oilier paint on top of uh, leaner layers of paint that, that don't have mm -hmm. any of those things and so on and so forth. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, walnut oil, I actually think I have some walnut oil here somewhere in the studio uh, that I've been meaning to try, but uh, I don't know. I, every one of my paintings just takes so long that by the time I think about experimenting, the painting is kind of, finished yeah <laughs> and uh so i think about it for the next one maybe but uh that's a, that's interesting that you that you've been using them it's definitely and, uh, a, a trial and error and you, you mentioned that my work is kind of a, a uh, sort of like experimental and it is and it's kind of a trial and error over the years um but it's also it, there's a science to it and you know you briefly mentioned alchemy you know a lot of creators feel like that yeah. what they're creating is alchemy um, it's a laboratory. Also, if you're a painter and you're using oil paint and it's sunny and you've got a window, you've got to be careful because that can create a fire hazard. And there's been the Glasgow School of Art, hasn't it? The Glasgow School of Art in Glasgow in Scotland that has 
been set fire to uh, twice in I think a space of 10 years because um, students had left their rags of oil and everything else inside it. Oh, was that what caused it? Yeah, that oh, wow. was it. I didn't know what the cause was. I just sort of heard that this had happened, but I didn't, yeah. oh, wow, okay. It's happened twice. Yeah. <laughs> well, this, the, the whole safety side of being an artist is a, well, again, a conversation that could go on for hours for, at another yeah. time, but it's, 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 um, it's widely overlooked, including by myself at times. I mean, you know, I don't have yeah. adequate ventilation, but I do have a window. You know, there's a yeah. whole bunch of things. I don't paint with gloves, though technically you probably should. Well, yeah. Albeit I'm not a messy painter, but nevertheless, things happen. Um, but yeah, I think no, these are it, things that you sort of, again, I, you're either taught during your MA as well in particular, like you yeah. have like a cabinet to put your white spirits right. and everything else yeah. and, you know, flammable stuff in there and they close it and that's it for the day. Um, yeah. Also, you know, what I was taught as well on my BA and my MA is always have your studio clean and ready for the next day or whenever you're going yeah. to come back in. Yeah, I do. I abide same? by that. Yeah. 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 No, no. Like it's, it's, um, you know, to the extent that one can as a painter, um, yeah. I treat this studio space like a laboratory, like a yes. lab, a lab for making alternate universes. <laughs> that's um, awesome. So, yeah. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's what this is. It's, it's, yeah. you know, it, I mean, painting is inherently a messy activity. So not everything's pristine, but I try to keep it as clean and organized as possible. Uh, mm -hmm. Get rid of clutter, make sure everything's kind of ready, as you said, uh, for the mm -hmm. next day. So cleaning up the palette at the end of the day is the ritual of ending the day. It's quite martial yeah, arts-like, sure. isn't it? It's yes, sort of, yes. it's basically like that film, isn't it? Um, films talking about films today um i can't really uh the kung fu film from the 80s we're really uh, like uh, showing our age well. van damme or no which one no it's the other one oh, the karate um, kid karate kid yeah karate yes, kid yes. it's like wash off wash on you know, right. and yeah. like how you do yeah. things and it's true it's like all these kind of esoteric things do come in i think for us it's quite innate I, I, but i just talking about it out loud with you i'm just sort of being reminded again of like how ritualistic it is you know and sciencey and um it's also discipline and it's discipline too because i think you have or at least i you know you have to have some amount of discipline to do this it's a self-directed yeah. thing it's not always exciting a lot of the times at least for me you know <laughs> painting can be quite boring at times you know there's there's all sorts of moments and there's nobody that's forcing you to do this and so <laughs> no, um, it's just self-torture <laughs> well, there you go. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you have to, you know, you have to put this structure around yourself of, I, I know I'll make sure that this yeah. is cleaned up then, and then this is ready for then. And then, you know, you plan out paint, or at least I plan out paintings in terms of time periods so that it takes this amount of time to dry. And so then I won't start yeah. on the next layer until such and such has happened. Um, so it's all part of that, exactly that martial arts lifestyle mm -hmm. of making sure everything is kind of working like clockwork and then feeds the soul and gives it some amount of tranquility on that level. Cause if that side's chaotic, then the painting itself is gonna be, it's yeah. gonna suffer as a result. So you have to have everything surrounding the painting being in a Zen-like uh, state of harmony, I think. I agree, absolutely. And the thing is, I also really love Francis Bacon's work, but I can't <laughs> but, understand his studio yes. was an absolute 
tip. I could not mentally deal with that absolute yes. mess. I just couldn't. Um, well, I of think, course, his I work think, is very oh. psychoanalytic. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, his whole studio is a is a subject matter for psychoanalysis. I think. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think uh, David Hockney, the artist, said that. Uh, I mean, he wasn't. He's not at all messy like like Francis Bacon, but still, he said he's called himself a bit of a slob and so on. And uh, he said, well, he just has a heightened sense of order, so he can see it where others can't. Um, uh. So maybe that's the excuse for. Francis Bacon as well. He had just an yeah. ex extraordinarily heightened sense of order. So all the, mm. the total chaos in his studio made sense to him and nobody else. That's, that's, that's the excuse one could use at least. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, there's an element of futurism and science for me, uh, observing your work um, that I can personally see. Um, there's also this artist, I've, I've forgotten his name. He was Italian Scottish based in Scotland, and he was quite futuristic in his paintings. Um, as soon as I remember it, I will mention it now, or I'll just drop you a message okay. about it. Um, in the meantime, are you um, sort of represented by a gallery at the moment? Are you interested in being represented, or are you self-representing, or both? Like, what's, where are um, you at with that? Well, I am represented by a gallery in Berlin, Gallery Crammers. Um, I was, uh, I'm, I'm sort of, I have two minds about gallery representation on one hand. I've, I've become yeah. quite picky uh, mm -hmm. over the last five years, I guess. Uh, when I was living in Berlin, which was from 2011 to 2016, mm -hmm. in essence, um, I was represented at varying times by three different galleries. Uh, I was represented by a gallery in London, which right. ended up closing. Or, and oh, then sort of okay. it re-emerged under a different form later on. But in the interim, it closed and things ended with that. And that was never a great fit in any case. Um, I wonder if we I were was, represented by the same gallery <laughs> a while uh, back. I, we can talk about it later. Yeah, we could talk about that later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots to say about that. Offline, yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, I was represented briefly by a gallery in Canada. In, well, it was in... Well, it's currently in Montreal, but, um, mm -hmm. and through that, you just discover that the relationship with the gallerist is, is important to make sure everybody um, is stable, at least, <laughs> yeah. is an easy person to work with and so on. And so that becomes something of the utmost importance that you discover. Yeah, um, it's, and it's then crucial. towards the end of my time in Berlin, I uh, was represent, or I started being represented by a new gallery that was, it was, it was a great relationship. Um, it was a great gallery in a sense that they were in a perfect location. The space was very nice. Uh, they were highly, highly ambitious, lots of energy around them. Mm -hmm. um, so much energy that they burnt themselves out within three years and closed. Oh. So, so mm -hmm. I, I had this unfortunate streak of galleries closing, but yeah. on some level that also helped me to kind of uh, continue to be self-sufficient and also not rely on the gallery system, which has a lot of yeah. flaws as mm -hmm. much as it is great on other levels as well. It's yeah. it's great for promotion and great for some amount of consistency and, and things of mm. this sort. Um, but there's, a, it, it's, it's again, it's, it's a complicated topic, but um, you want somebody that really fully understands what you're doing and isn't only invested in it 
purely on the level of sales, which is their job, but you want them to be able to express what the work is about while being able to promote it at the same time. Um, Definitely. I find that's Definitely. a surprisingly rare quality at times that, that it's yeah. to have that mix of business acumen and also sort of knowledge in terms of an interest, I guess, is what it mm -hmm. is really. It really comes down to interest in learning about the materials and practices and, and ideas that surround the art. So uh, I've talked with various galleries since. And uh, like I said, I'm working with this gallery in Berlin, but uh, I'm, I'm quite happy just doing things as I am. Mm -hmm. And if something comes along and if something seems to be a good fit, um, then I'm not opposed to taking that either, but not mm -hmm. relying on that as something uh, permanent. Yeah. Again, that's what you learn through experience as well, isn't it? And also yeah. um, on pay, we speak about connecting as well and like having that connection rather than networking as a word, you know, connecting. Um, mm -hmm. Does the gallery connect with me and my work uh, on the right yeah. level? And I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm very fortunate that I have um attracted a great connection with the gallery that represents me um so and that again that's very very rare and i've gone through many so <laughs> i've also taken yeah. one to court so um but anyway um you know i was i was mentioning the italian scottish artist he's not really futuristic yeah. he's sort of known as pop art but his name was eduardo paolozzi um, and I can send you it. Hmm. It's very the cool. The name rings right? a bell, but I, I think you would recognize it. it. Yeah, I think okay. you recognize it. I mean, it's not really on the same level as as your work. It's a sort of different, slightly different genre, well, very different genre. But they they have like elements of like the visual culture in them mm -hmm. and um, the sort of swirling effect as well and appropriation from other painters and it's very cool. Um, and I have a friend of mine called Polly from my school days, um, and she had like five originals at home uh which was quite cool and then he died oh, wow. so, oh, <laughs> um, <okay>. yeah <laughs> so Trent, did he die prematurely I, I don't know I, I can't remember but he had an interesting studio and his studio is now a, a place that uh, something that they recreated in Edinburgh and oh, I saw nice. it I saw it in the contemporary um museum there a few years ago and it's actually really cool if you get a chance to come to the UK and go to Scotland, yeah. I would encourage you to go and see it. Um, well, that's great. I, I actually find that something that happens so much more in Europe that they, you know, they view some of these artists as, as people whose activity is worth preserving in some way. And so you have the ability to visit these studio spaces, even if they're recreated. Mm -hmm. um, you see this in France, you see this all over the place. You see this in Finland. Um, yes. Whereas I, you really don't get a lot of that uh, in Canada or in North America, you do to some extent, you know, they've kept Jackson Pollock's place alive and yeah, there's a couple things have. here or there, but, yeah. but it's not quite the same. Uh, there's not quite the amount of, of preservation, which is a bit of a shame. Uh, I, I think of even just like Andy Warhol's factory would be great if, you know, something yeah. like that would have been preserved, but, but, you know, imagine that would have been, that would be so cool Yeah, to see that. Um, and do you speak any Finnish? I speak enough to get by on a rudimentary daily basis. <laughs> yeah. But if the topic moves to philosophy or politics or anything in uh, 
complicated, even art, anything like that, it becomes a bit of a struggle. But that is something I'm looking to rectify. Uh, yeah. I was actually better when I was younger. I, yeah. I had a Finnish accent, apparently, when I spoke English when I was like three uh, or four. Because um, I learned Finnish simultaneously with English yeah. when I was growing up. Uh, but, you know, less exposure to it, you do lose it. And it's not a language that uh, you come across at all. Very, it's it's very sort often. of one of the most useless languages outside of Finland because nobody speaks it. So, Are there uh, any, it's, it's, like... Are there any like TV series on Netflix or something that you can hear it, listen to and finish or just to keep uh, that going? Not, I, I feel like most of the Finnish films and TV series that filter out are all like sort of crime TV, detective dramas yeah. and things of this sort. Though they do make other interesting uh, films and TV shows, but they never seem to actually get out there into the world. Um, Although there is a there is a Finnish filmmaker that I guess maybe the best known Finnish filmmaker is Aki Kaurismäki, who makes these incredibly metaphorical but also intensely depressed and dark, uh, morbid films about depressed, yeah. dark, morbid people in Finland. <laughs> so so you know you can only watch that so often. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, no, there's not much Finnish language content that gets out into the world. There's Finnish everything else that gets out into the world. Finnish mm -hmm. art, Finnish music, Finnish books, Finnish sports figures, Finnish everything, uh, Finnish politics, Finnish yada yada, but actually hearing the language is a very relatively rare uh, mm -hmm. activity. Yeah. I, guess, fact, I guess a lot of people confuse it with Japanese. There's some sort of weird link, like yeah, sonic interesting. link there. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I probably hear it um, when I'm Back in London, um, I could probably, probably yeah, do yeah. a little bit. Or just in Europe, just generally. Yeah, not probably not much, no. I was thinking about Borgen, but Borgen's Danish. Um, oh, right. That crime yeah. <laughs> Anyway. Yeah. It was always sort of an alarm that went off when I'd hear a Finnish person when I was in Europe. It's yeah. Like, oh. But it's, yes. it was rare. It was like maybe about a dozen times in the times in, in the five years that I was in Berlin, I would um, hear like a Finnish kind of alarm talk, go talk, off. Talking about Finland, um, and and you know we're going to go to now the part where we talk about um, tips and tricks um, here on high pay. What would you, what would be your tips and tricks? Uh, maybe segueing <laughs> the Finnish thing, um, or not. What's your tips and tricks generally as a painter, as an artist, that you would um, like to share to the high pay listeners? Yeah, I guess uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's a link to the Finnish side there. Not really, other than maybe, maybe. I mean, you know, northern people in general, but Finns maybe specifically, are often accused of being somewhat stoic, reserved, mm -hmm. shy. Um, that does describe me in, in, in many ways. And I think you need to have a comfort with being alone to be a painter. At least yeah. I do. Being alone yeah. in a space for a while. And so um that stoicism gets transmitted to kind of um my general principles when it comes to to, to making painting in terms of so mm -hmm. i mean i guess it's not really a tip or a trick but it is it's a rule in in the sense that i have for myself which is 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 just not worry too much if something's not working because that's part of the expectation that 
um, things will fall apart, things will not work, but there's another day and then the next day in the studio, you have another chance to remake the reality that fell apart yesterday. That applies mm -hmm. to life just as much as it does to, um, to painting. I mean, you know, we're going through life creating our own life and we're, I'm going through a painting creating, again, sort of metaphorically, life in the painting. And so there's going to be ups and downs. And um, so there's a certain sort of stoicism, almost like ice water that I employ to just keep myself at a level to not panic if things don't work. Uh, I'll know that it will eventually, if I just stick with it, if I just show up the next day, um, it'll get there eventually. Mm -hmm. um, and I, but you know, that's, that stoicism, I guess, it's not to discount the other kind of, I guess, rule that I have for myself, which is to always work with intensity, like just like ice water on one side and then <laughs> a blazing atomic fire on the other. And to kind of find myself sort of stuck in that middle zone of, of um, I would say sort of high ambition and no expectation. Um, so I started painting and think it's going to be the best painting anyone's ever seen. It doesn't necessarily achieve that, but I have that ambition with every painting, the ambition to make the perfect painting and it'll never get there. But if you, you know, if you just do whatever you're doing and as I'm doing with intensity um, and specifically actually with intention and intent to do something specific to do something unique to do something that's about creating something that's never been seen before in in my case with each painting um there's more of a chance that you'll actually stick through to the end because it's easy to give up halfway or get bored halfway or whatever especially with these paintings that take three months you have to maintain a kind of you have to remind yourself sometimes of what you're doing and if you don't have that intention there at the beginning you'll just sort of lose your way. Um, and so you have to be consistent. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just being consistent from beginning to end, uh, allowing one thing to kick the door open to the next. People ask me what I'm going to do next in terms of what, what's my next painting. And I have hazy ideas, but everything is based on what I'm doing yesterday or today. Yeah. So all like these two rules of, of, of um, not worrying about things falling apart and also just being consistent and intense about it and, and being um, specific about my intention, it allows me to be sure and in some way gain confidence that if I just keep doing this, something will happen, even if I don't really know what it is now. And that could easily, like, you can lose your mind if you don't know what you're going to do next, mm -hmm. except if you have a system in place that will allow you to find your way to that thing and you trust I mean, it's been working so far. <laughs> so I look back and think, well, if I just, history has proven that so far so good in terms of my ability to find my way forward. Um, Absolutely. I think uh, then everything, th those are my main two ideas. And then it's just, I think, uh, you know, a lot of, there's a, there seems to be, um, I think sometimes painters confuse artistic success with like career success. Mm -hmm. um, so, 
you know, you have to be famous or you have to sell a ton of paintings or, and if not, then you're not successful. But that's confusing um, sort of a societal expectation with artistic and I, I, it's almost feels contrived to use the word integrity, but artistic integrity of your intention, which is to create something, um, a singular kind of existence. And if you just focus on, on that original intention that you've had, um, there's no expectation to be famous or to, to make a ton of money from, from what you're doing. And if that comes along with it, then great. But I think the less you focus on fame, the more maybe likely you're to have it in the long term, ironically, than mm -hmm. if you know you really focus on this like hyper successful um, sort of departure point. But but these are all this is sort of a generalization, and you know everybody's path is different. But um, I just find there's a lot of hype, sort of no pun intended, with the podcast. But I mean hype <laughs> yeah. in terms of in terms of uh, career expectation and careerist networking and so on and so forth, um, which gets away from actually the point of being an artist, a painter mm -hmm. in the first place. Like the, the two don't gel. One is a solitary Zen-like activity and the other is something that involves some form of not manipulation, but um, sort of savvy, I guess, sort of, social political savvy to kind of uh twist the world to your uh desires i guess um and if i just try to put all my desires into the painting <laughs> and see what happens there absolutely and it just seems like that's kind of a recurring theme here on high pay where guests are talking about consistency integrity of course as well um and intention of as being main ones um, yeah. And that's also another reason why I called it high pay the podcast because there's such a hype in the creative fields in general. You know, this is this is the platform where we talk about behind the scenes and what actually goes on, and we're geeking out talking about the materials that we use and how we apply the paint. <laughs> you know, and, yes, um, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and not many people know about you know the sleepless nights, the frustration, uh, you know, the the, the testing, the um, also the temptation to quit or the temptation to you know i in either way in the career in your career yeah. um or even should, in the studio no exactly i i should you know I, I say all these things about zen and all this and that's my baseline level but like you just said there's a lot of anxiety and stress that's implied by this or that comes along with this job um because it is self-sufficient because it's an intensely personal activity. I mean, you're putting, you're creating something from scratch. You're putting everything of yourself into something and hope that it finds a place in the world. It's not a, mm. it's not a drone-like activity. It's sort of, you live and die with your painting on some level, even a small part of you. And so, yeah, there can be sleepless nights or all these other things that, that, uh, you have to find a way to control that a little bit. Otherwise, again, it's just the temptation to quit maybe could become too, too intense at some point. And I think people, and again, it's totally fair. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's not for everybody. It's, uh, it, it, it's a stressful life at times, but the rewards are well worth it, I think. And that's the, that's the, uh, 
ultimate sort of thing that brings happiness and the rewards meaning meaning in my case something small just you know looking at that blade of grass which is the little bit of colored pigment on a cloth or anything of that sort the resolution of a new pictorial fact mm-hmm. a new world on a canvas that is worth all the struggle and stress and maybe associated anxiety that comes with it but um, I do love what I do so it's all worth it Um, I'm not sure if we have enough time to talk about you know who inspires you um, but I was wondering if you wanted to just like briefly tell us if you have any books or book suggestions that you're reading or that you've you know just really quickly anything about Um, books at the moment actually well you know I I, um, I've not been reading a lot of uh, fiction recently but I I do find myself going back quite regularly to uh, the diaries of um, Eugene Delacroix, which I think is maybe one of the best artist journals out there. I mean, it's truly just insight after insight in terms of uh, the nature of painting, the nature of art, the nature of how it relates to society at large. Um, It really uncovers truths about about, uh, the nature of the activity that I think is interesting for people that don't know anything about art or, or they think that they don't know anything about art. They might actually, by reading that, find that they actually do know more than they thought that, that some of these ideas that artists think about in relation to painting are the thoughts that most people have just in daily life. Um, and, and for artists, I mean, he, he was such a, he was an artist that really revolutionized on some level the use of color and, and its relation to form and light. And so there's so many just sort of formal aesthetic revelations in his journals that, um, yeah, you can never get enough of that. Um, I love reading artist interviews as well. Just, yeah. um, I mentioned David Hockney earlier, who uh, I just find his exuberance, the, the exuberance that comes across in his interviews to be intoxicating and his work while um fantastic it's 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 almost no match for his personality which uh which uh is 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 truly electric at times um but uh then there's this kind of mysterious side to some stuff that i read like uh the 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 fiction of paul oster who i don't know if if um it, it, it really doesn't show up directly in my work, but it's the, the, the mood of unresolved identity within a wider social sphere, I guess, um, which I find just intriguing. And all is, well, all of what I've read has this undercurrent of slight anxiety punctuated with, you know, uh, moments of intense calm. So it's sort of like finding yourself comfortable in um, confusion, which which I, I, I sort of, is something that I take from that, I guess just subconsciously when I'm thinking about constructing paintings, um, taking that mystery and, and making sure everything isn't quite defined as one would maybe expect it to be. Um, but, yeah, there's a, there's a, a a picture that I came across a few years ago of a monk um, standing or sitting amongst a crowd of fast-paced people 
it could have been anywhere in any metropolis in the world but that's the key that's where you really implement the teachings of buddhism and amongst the chaos how do you stay zen you know um well there's a uh I, i i sort of alluded earlier to the fact that i have this ongoing film project Yes, very excited um, about that. <laughs> I've, I've been, I mean, I've literally been making it for 10 years, just in bits and pieces, and it's really very on and off. Um, but it is based very loosely on uh, a painting that I did called The Man of the Crowd, which that was based on a short story by Edgar Allan Poe called The Man of the Crowd. Um, oh, wow. Now that, it has no plot. It has no particular structure. It barely has an arc. It's, um, it's just the narrator following a man around as he wanders seemingly aimlessly through the night, um, wondering what his purpose is in life and noticing you know, maybe he, he needs to feed off the energy of the crowd or does he because he also just sits alone for a while. And all this, it's, it's basically a, a, a contemplation of existence in the span of one evening. Um, sort of the, the, the idea there of the, of the monk in a crowd reminded me of that. It's this one singular person having a, uh, just a moment apart from everything um, within Absolutely. a seemingly chaotic atmosphere, or at least transforming that chaos into something positive so that it's not chaos at all. Um, I think that's, 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 what, look, that's what I'm trying to do with my painting is, is take yeah. the chaos and resolve it into something that's that's ultimately the the opposite of chaos I feel Um, you on that I feel you on that 100% I mean that's kind of something that I do as well which I'm sure you're aware of um but sort of lastly what would your word of wisdom be if you'd like to share share that with the high pay listeners or for someone who's even sort of starting off as a painter as an artist um well just briefly on the word wisdom itself uh, I forget who it was, but I think, you know, the, I, someone once said that painting is an old person's art. And I think that's quite yeah. true, even mm-hmm. though a lot of the time, you know, we, 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 we think that what an artist does in the first half of their career is usually the best. I don't know if that's actually true. I think they just maybe get more refined as they get older. Um, there's a deeper understanding of the medium. Um, so I think, there's, there's sort of, um, it's important to just acknowledge the fact that we never, ever, ever stop learning about this process. Just the, mm-hmm. the moment that we think we've got something figured out, this uh, sort of eureka moment, that that moment, in fact, isn't the resolution of anything, that that is just the beginning of the next thing. Um, and so I think that if you realize that, then it sort of becomes an inspiration to keep moving forward and to keep learning and to realize that at least as an artist you've provided yourself with a life of never-ending eureka type moments from which you can launch something entirely new Um, and uh, I guess if that's a form of wisdom I'm not sure but it sort of at least gives you a sense of uh, accomplishment which feels like wisdom (laughs) It takes, it takes time to come to that sense of wisdom. And I think that comes with age. Yeah. Um, 
And where can the high pay listeners find your work? I mean, we know that you're having a solo show right now, but where is that solo show uh, in a physical location? Well, I should actually, I should actually clarify. It's a two-person show. Um, It's a two-person show with another Montreal-based artist, uh, Maude Corrivo. That runs until uh, the middle of this month, and that's at uh, Cash Studio. Uh, Gallery Cash Studio in Montreal, so uh, C-A-C-H-E Studio. Um, I'm also part of a small group show, sort of a self-curated group show with another Montreal-based artist, Julie Trudell, and two Finnish artists, uh, Jaco Mattila and uh, Maya Savalainen, which just Mm -hmm. opened its second version of its show here in Montreal. Um, That's... uh, in a part of Montreal called Verdun at uh, their Maison de la Culture, which is the culture culture house, sort of city run uh, art spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a show that unites us all in an interest, a shared interest in light and how it interacts with space and uh, color and material and so on. Now that show will also travel to Finland sometime in the next couple of years as well. So I'm looking forward to Great. that. That's so um, cool. Please do let me know. I'd love to yeah. physically go to the Finland um, show. Oh, um, that'd be great. I'm in, yeah, unless I'm yeah. in Canada um, before that. Um, and, and how about the websites? I mean, are those galleries um, showing some of the works online? Um, Cash Studio should be showing the works online. Um, the uh, Maison de la Culture one, that's a city-run thing, and so they're mm-hmm. a bit less um useful in that way yeah. it's it's with all city things it's it goes through like 50 layers of bureaucracy and so it yeah it really they have they have the uh the show text and sort of a banner image but ultimately the best place to see images of the work and of the shows are it's on instagram um or on my website but so the cash studio space has uh an instagram i think it's gallery g a l E-R-I-E, so the French version of the word gallery. Gallery Cash Studio, I think that's their Instagram. And my Instagram is Eric N Art, E-R-I-K-N Art. So we I, I post pictures of the new works from those shows there as well. Um, so that's probably ultimately the best pace, even though Instagram is, you know, it is as it is in its small little image format, but uh, yeah. yeah. It's there. Um, it's Eric. There. It's been an absolute wonderful, wonderful, wonderful um, pleasure, let's say. Uh, well, likewise. <laughs> it's been an absolute delight and I have a lot of respect for you as a painter and would love to have you back at some point in one of the next seasons coming up um, or in the next, in the future. And we'd love to hear more, more about your processes because I feel like we've only really touched the surface uh, no pun intended. Yes, no, um, sure. That would be a pleasure. No, there's an endless amount of conversations to be had about painting and the artist's life in general. <laughs> thanks, Eric. And um, I guess for the moment, I'll see you online. Absolutely. All right. Take care. Take care.